Our scripture text is from Psalm 85, as we are in the middle of a psalm series that we are covering for the month of December, which traditionally known as the Advent season. So you can find Psalm 85 in your bulletin and listen along as we hear God's word. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Salah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we ask now that you would speak to us, that your spirit would attend to the proclamation of your truth so that we might see once again the wonderful things out of your law and in seeing that we might believe and rest in your unchanging grace towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first Christmas was a revival. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus, his conception, his birth from the Virgin Mary was a work of God, a revival. And I don't mean a revival as many think of it when they hear that word revival. I mean, Jesus coming to this earth wasn't a revival in the sense of um, many, the way many people think of it, especially in evangelical Protestant Christianity. It didn't involve a showy fanfare of loud preachers with fire and brimstone messages in a big white tent compelling people to walk down an aisle and reform their lives. It wasn't a Billy Graham crusade from the 1940s or 50s with packed auditoriums of thousands of people who were raising their hands to say a prayer. And nor was it like the so-called revivals of the 19th century in America and Britain, where again, people were compelled and pressured to walk an aisle to make some sort of moral change in their lives. And it wasn't even like the revivals of the First Great Awakening, which unfortunately at times stressed outward displays of faith over the inward work of God. 
Instead, the first advent of Jesus was a real revival, a true spiritual refreshing, the kind of revival that we all need. It was God working in a powerful way to refresh, revive, restore, and rescue his people from their sin. You see, revival is God lifting people up from the miry pit of their own rebellion, their own transgression, and the corruption of this world to rest, to rest upon his unfailing promises that he has made from the beginning of the world. And that isn't something we can make happen. You cannot manufacture that. It is completely a supernatural work of God where he has entered, according to his grace, into human history in a very powerful, saving way. It isn't something that we can make happen, but it is something for which we should pray. In fact, it is something which we need to be praying for. I once heard it said that we don't pray for revival because we don't really think it could happen. I mean, look at the early church and there are 6,000 people added in one day. And we say, can the Lord really do that now? Well, sure he can, but eh, will it happen? Probably not. Psalm 85 is a prayer for that kind of revival. It's a prayer for God to do again what he has done in a past. It is a recipe for revival. And so what are the ingredients then? How are we to actually pray that God would intervene in this powerful supernatural way? Well, the first thing we see, the first ingredient of this prayer of revival is that we simply remember what God has done. The psalmist begins by saying, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. He's remembering a time when, when God looked upon his people in good favor. In the ancient Near East, a king showed his favor towards a subject when he turned his face towards him. And if he were to turn away in court... It usually did not mean good things for that subject. It usually meant there would be judgment. But when God looks upon his people as the high king of heaven, when his smile is upon the land, they knew the good fortune of his mercy. And God's favor then is his grace. And his grace is restorative. It brings new life to that which is dying. It refreshes and renews that which is fading. And the psalmist looks back then at a time in, in Israel's history when God was looking upon the people in good favor. In this prayer, God's people, as they pray and remember what God had done, are not simply pining for the good old days when things were better. Rather, they are remembering specifically what God had done for them. And what did he do? Two things. First, they remembered God's mercy, his forgiveness. As the psalmist writes, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Iniquity is associated with guilt. And guilt, of course, results from sin. It is, is the mark that 
uh, sin leaves on a person. There is a stain of guilt. And sin, of course, is, is falling short of God's standard, His law, transgressing it, breaking it, rebelling against Him. And so here the people remember that God forgave them not just of their sins, not just the things they had done, but their very guiltiness as well. He forgives them completely. It is, it is comprehensive. Not only does he cover their sin, but he lifts up and carries away their guilt. And notice too, in, in this remembrance of God's forgiveness, the psalmist declares, you covered, you covered all our sins, not just some of it, not just part of it, but all of it, all of it is forgiven. And then he invites a pause. Because we get that little word, Selah, which was probably a musical notation that meant to rest. But the, why pause here, though? Why pause after declaring you have covered all our sins? Well, it's because of the enormity of that act of mercy that removes their guilt and covers all their sin. I mean, consider what Israel as God's people had done. After being rescued by God, freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, they no sooner turned from him to worship an idol of their own making, the image of the golden calf. And God provides for their needs as they wander through the wilderness, and yet they grumble and they complain against his gracious provision. He gives them his law, instructs them on how they are to live in a way that they might flourish by loving God and loving their neighbor. And what do they do? They break it time and time again. He gives them a land to build a nation where they might worship him alone. And yet they defile it by going after the desires of their own hearts and engaging in horrible acts of idolatry. And despite their unfaithfulness, God continually chastises them and delivers them. He sends them rescuer after rescuer in the form of judges and later kings to, to free them from their enemies. And yet they continually rebel in this constant cycle. No, they do not deserve God's mercy. They do deserve His judgments. It is right and duly deserves. But all that sin, the psalmist remembers, all that rebellion, all of it, every last evil deed, lustful thought, vengeful word, every selfish action, it's all forgiven and the guilt taken away. He restored them. He revived them through His merciful forgiveness. And they remember that. Secondly, they remember they were saved from God's judgment. Not only do they remember that their sins are forgiven in this prayer for revival, but they remember that they are spared from the consequence of those sins. God's holy judgment, as he says in verse 3, you withdrew, you pulled away all your wrath, and you turned from your hot anger. They were saved then not only from their sin, but the effect of their sin. God's holy anger is pacified once the sins of his people are purified. 
And it is from that remembrance that they have been forgiven and that God's anger has been satisfied by His mercy. It is from that remembrance that revival starts. In fact, this is why we today, even as God's people, gather weekly to worship Him so that we might remember It's why we hear the same gospel again and again and again, because we don't need another gospel. There isn't one. We only have to be reminded of the grace that is promised to us in that gospel, which has already been proclaimed to us. Remembering what God has done is the beginning of being restored to him. And often as believers, it's easy to feel pretty apathetic about your faith, isn't it? I've been there. I know what that's like. We live in a culture where feelings and emotions are often more important than truth and reality. And we want many times that that warm, fuzzy religion that makes us feel better about ourselves, that makes us feel closer to God. And Obviously, feeling and emotion are not evil things. We are created with those, those things after all. But they can deceive us as they often do. And so God calls us here to look back and to remember what He has done, not how we feel about ourselves, but to look at what He has done and then worship Him for that. That's the most important thing we can do. Look back and remember what He has done because of who He is. Remember that He withdrew His holy judgment because He removed our sin and guilt. And as we remember that truth, which is a present reality, will begin to once again be restored in His grace. For it leads us to the second thing we see in this prayer for revival. We remember what God has done, and upon remembering, we plead for more mercy. We ask for more. The psalmist writes in verse 4 through 7, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And so the people pray after remembering what God's favor was like. They say, restore us again. Revive us. Make us alive again. Breathe life back into our weary souls. There's this plea here to God. Put away your indignation. Put it back on the shelf. Gather it up and move it aside. And that seems rather bold. I mean, who are we to tell God, put away your holy indignation because of the sin we have committed against him? And yet that is what they are doing here. I mean, who are we to question God? Will you be angry with us forever? Will, your, will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? 
No doubt in your Christian life, at some point, you've asked similar questions of the Lord. You felt what this psalmist was feeling, what the people of God were experiencing. For it felt as if God's heavy hand was upon them. And they are asking God, how long, how long, Lord, how long must I struggle with my guilt? How long will we have to endure this suffering? How long till you revive us again? Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God's people were in a similar situation. After all, he had promised to deliver them from all their enemies and to save them out of all their troubles and to restore them into his kingdom. Prophets had proclaimed it. Priests presented it to them through the ceremonial worship of God's people and patriarchs prepared for it to happen. And even going back to Eden, immediately after the fall, God promises that there would be the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and deliver God's people forever. And from that moment forward, as the wheel of redemptive history continued to spin, we saw a mighty act of God and mighty act of God revivals His saving power as it inches the world ever forward to the coming of Christ. But there, 2,000 years ago, it had been so long. The burden of sin still weighed upon the people. They were still oppressed by many enemies. Under the rule of the Roman Empire at that time, the corruption of the world marched ever onward. The prophets had long been silent and the priests had become corrupt. God's people languished under their sin. Faith in the promise had grown cold. And it was at that moment when you think it wouldn't happen that God worked Again, he sent a revival and it came in the presence of Jesus, the son. He was born of a virgin just as he promised and he died and was buried just as he promised and he rose again just as it had been promised and is now ascended to the right hand of God on high just as had been promised. And the very next thing, of course, on the agenda of God's great redemptive plan is for Christ the King to return and finalize the kingdom He is now building. And we're still waiting for that. It's been over 2,000 years, two millennia of, of conflicts and chaos and sin and suffering. It's, it's been a long sojourn, an enduring exileship. And when we feel that, when we experience the overwhelming darkness of this sin-cursed world, it is good and it is right for us to ask God, how long? How long till your reckoning comes? How long? And we plead for more mercy. You see, we can ask these questions of God because we've already experienced His mercy and grace. That's what we remembered. We remembered what He has done, and so we ask for more of what He has done. And God wants us to. He wants us to ask more of His grace and more of His mercy, because He wants us to want Him more. 
The very reason that we ask for more of God's mercy and grace and his love, more of his saving work, is because when we do so, we are worshiping him. And he receives the glory he duly deserves and desires. As the psalmist says here, will you not revive us again? Why? So that we might rejoice in you. It's worship. That's why the psalmist asks the questions that he does. That's why it is good and right for him to do so. Because God is glorified in the asking. And so he cries out in prayer, show us, God, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant to us your salvation. And would that we would plead with God as his people of old, Lord, do it again, restore us. But after we make that plea, what are God's people to do? What then? Well, here's the third thing. We listen. That's it. We listen to his voice for his answer. The psalmist continues in verse 8. He says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. A conversation involves more than two people, two or more people. I mean, I guess you can converse with yourself, but they say that's the first sign that you're going crazy, right? I mean, I know this. I've, I've, I told myself that. <laughs> but dialogue involves a back and forth, right? A give and a take, a speaking and a listening. And we've seen that. The people remember what God has done. They plead to him for his mercy. And now, They sit and they listen for his answer. Prayer is a conversation with God, a divine dialogue. And so we speak to him, we praise him, we we bear our burdens, confess our sins, and then we listen, we wait for that reply. And God does answer. He does respond to our questions of how long, how long will we have to suffer? Will you not work again? Will you not bring to completion your work of salvation? Will you not revive us again? But the answer that comes is not a voice in our head, nor is it even a feeling in our heart. God doesn't give you any new revelation of himself because he's already given you everything you need to hear. Instead, we hear his voice in our hearts, in our minds, through his word in which he has revealed himself. We don't have prophecy today revealing God's wisdom anymore because it's already all been revealed. Peter calls the Bible the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which You will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So what does God speak when we plead for more of his reviving mercy and grace, more of his forgiveness? 
of sin and guilt. What is the word he speaks to us? Well, the psalmist tells us to his people, to his saints, to those he has made his own and consecrated, he speaks a word of peace. Not animosity, not division. He doesn't make them his enemy. He speaks peace to them. Though they have sinned, though they have failed to keep his law and broken covenant with him, he keeps covenant with them and he greets them with peace. Salvation is near to those who fear him, those who cry out, those who with repentant hearts ask those hard questions of God that the psalmist asks here and pleads for their mercy. But for those who do not turn to him, those who are not manifested to be part of his covenant people who have been consecrated by his mercy and grace, who do not cry out to him, but continue on in their own sinful ways, God speaks a very different word. It is not a word of peace. We see in this psalm that the fear of God is being contrasted with folly. What is folly or foolishness? And we read a lot of it in the book of Proverbs. We hear about folly and the foolish man. Well, folly or being a fool is simply this. It is trusting in my own ways instead of trusting in God. It is looking to my own strength, my own reasoning, my own ability for my salvation, for the remedies of the problems of my life, rather than relying upon the Lord and submitting to Him. And the implication here is, if you do not repent and you continue in that folly, there is no word of peace because what you do deserve at that point is God's holy anger forever. Yet the final word God speaks is salvation to those who turn to him. And it is near, says the psalmist, it is near to those who fear him. Who look to him. It is not far. It is not distant. It sure feels like it sometimes. It seems like the darkness grows. And the night is closing in. But it does not last. Salvation is near. Says the psalmist. That glory may dwell in our land. And what glory is he speaking of? What is this glory? Well it is the glory of the presence of God himself. With you. God's presence is the mark of his favor upon his people. You see, Christmas was truly a revival because it was God, Emmanuel, which means God with us, coming to his people. As John writes in his gospel, and the word that is Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God's presence in Christ Jesus is the word of peace that is spoken to you as his people. And he speaks it to you when you plead for that mercy. Which leads us to one final thing we see in this prayer of restoration, this recipe for revival. So we remember 
God's past mercy and his grace. And we plead for more of that mercy and grace. And then we listen to God's voice, respond with that word of peace. And when he does, we rest. We rest in his faithful covenant love. As we read in verses 10 through 13, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make footsteps away. Steadfast love is the loyal covenant love of God towards his people. It is loyalty with a relationship. And what it means is this, is that God has bound himself to act in a particular way towards his people. It is because of this loyal love, as we look in in another psalm, Psalm 136, that he made the universe for his people to dwell in and to know him. It was because of his loyal love that he struck down the armies of Egypt and rescued them from bondage. It was because of his loyal love that he gave the people a land of promise. And it is to that covenant, that loyal, faithful love of God that his people appeal when they sin against him and plead for restoration and revival. And God, because he promised to forgive all who turn to him, will revive them. And so after many years of waiting and feeling the weariness of the world, the light of his covenant love breaks forth as he sends his only son into the world at that first advent. He is a God who is faithful and never changes. And thus it is that very same covenant love that that saved Israel back in the Old Testament time and again. That very same loyal covenant love of God that sent Jesus as a baby into this world to bring the peace of salvation to those who look to Him. It is that same covenant love in which you now in this moment can find your rest. It is the covenant love that will revive your tired and weary soul and speak to you that word of peace. For it is the steadfast love of God that meets the righteousness of God. And as it does that in the person of Christ, your righteousness, as the psalmist says, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Righteousness looking down from heaven reminds us that it, that is its true source. For there is no righteousness in the natural state of human hearts. We are anything but righteous. We deserve God's wrath that the psalmist has spoken of. But righteousness flows down like a refreshing rain from heaven to quench the parched hearts of God's people and quiet that weariness. And faithfulness springing up from the ground is is God's faithfulness manifested in His people as He fulfills 
what he has long promised. Yes, God will always do what he says, and we can rest in that truth. So the psalmist says, as he rests in that reality, that God grants his righteousness to his people by his grace, he says, yes, The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. He gives us that righteousness so that we might walk in it before Him. And so there is this picture then of this promised restoration, this promised revival that rests in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus did all of that, as we've noted, in His first coming, His first advent. The weary people longed for that coming King, and He came just as it was promised to them. They remembered what God had done, what He had promised. They pled for Him. They listened to His voice. He spoke peace to them through the song of the angels as a baby was born in a manger. And they were able to rest And the one who said, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because God is faithful, because he is loyal to his covenant, we too can remember what God has done. We remember as we gather for worship, which leads us to plead for new mercies. We confess our sins because we want more of his forgiveness, of his grace, and we listen. We listen to His voice through His Word and through His sacraments, communicating that promised grace of the Gospel to us. Why? So that we might rest. Rest in the knowledge of the steadfast love and peace of God that have come together for us. Righteousness has fallen upon us. Not ours, but the righteousness of Christ our Lord. And He can revive our weary hearts. And that is why we should pray for revival. Because God does not change. We can pray for it. We can plead for more mercy as we remember what He has done in days of old. And one day, the final revival will come. One day, the land will prosper forevermore and there will be no further need for restoration. For one day, all darkness and all sorrow and all sin will be ended forevermore. But until that day, let us pray as God's people. Let us follow this recipe for revival and pray, Lord, do it again. Let us pray. Father in heaven, indeed our hearts do grow weary and cold. We are in constant need of being reminded of your many benefits towards us. Lord, as you remind us, help us to ask for more. Help us to plead for more of your saving power in our own lives, restoring us to you and in the lives of others. Lord, indeed, We want to see your mighty hand at work. Can you not add 6,000 to your church in one day? Indeed, you can. 
And so, Father, we ask that you would work in that power. And in this moment, Lord, we ask that you would help us to rest, to rest in the fact that we are made righteous through Jesus, our righteousness. And because of that, your smile, your favor is upon us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.